Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. It is a great pleasure for me that we have Daisy Dowling with us. Daisy and I go back a long way. Uh, We either worked together or knew each other when she was at Goldman and then certainly at Morgan Stanley. Uh, And and I actually have to say, I credit Daisy and I will forever be in your debt, Daisy, for uh, connecting me with her editor at Harvard Business Review and encouraging me to start writing. So if you are one of the listeners that have enjoyed the work that I do in writing uh, the books or the or the uh, blog, like you have Daisy to to thank for getting my foot in the door and and starting to do the kind of writing that um, I have so, so enjoyed and hopefully uh, created some value with. So Daisy, thank you, thank you so much. She is the writer of this new book called Work Parent, The Complete Guide to Succeeding on the Job, Staying True to Yourself and Raising Happy Kids. Um, it is truly the complete guide. Um, it is thick and big. And, and what I just said to her in our pre-conversation is, this is the new Dr. Spock. Like Dr. Spock was you know, great for its time, but you know, given that we are out there, and you know, most of us, probably almost everyone who's listening to this podcast, is is managing work in some form or other with raising children. Uh, if you have children, like you're, you know, if you have children, you're probably involved in work in some form or other, and and you also probably have a lot of questions because we live in a world that makes parenting much more complicated than it was certainly when I was a kid. Uh, I think, uh, in terms of some of the challenges and temptations of of the availability of technology and things like that. So I'm delighted to have a guide that actually has a point of view and an opinion and a well-thought-out one. So all of that to just say, Daisy, I'm delighted to have you on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so so you wrote this book, Work Parent, and the the other part of your uh, bio is that you're the founder and CEO of Work Parent, which is an executive coaching and training firm dedicated to helping working parents lead more successful and satisfying lives. You also have two children of your own, and you made this shift. So I want to talk origin story of this of this book and this work and this practice because when I knew you, you had originally been at J.P. Morgan and then Goldman Sachs and then Morgan Stanley, uh, and BlackRock, I think. And, um, and I'm curious, like you've taken this major shift and it's a shift that, first of all, many people fantasize about in some ways. And, and it's also a shift that I think takes a lot of, uh, a lot of courage to make. And I'm curious to hear about your journey into this sort of parenting space. Yeah. So I, I guess the, the very short story or the headline is that I sort of merged my my personal needs and my own journey with my professional one. So backing up when you and I first connected, it was gosh, about 10 years ago. Now I was busy. Yeah. 10, 11 years. I was busy building my career as a leadership development professional, helping men and women inside these big, you know, fortune 100 corporations succeed and get to the next level and get that promotion they wanted or lead the bigger team, make the big job move, whatever it was. 
And I loved my work. I loved training people. I loved the one-to-one coaching aspect of it. And I loved helping other people succeed. But there was one thing that made me really deeply uncomfortable about my work. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you're an executive coach and you feel like you don't really have anything in your you know, any arrows in your quiver on a particular topic, it can become very uncomfortable, right? You don't feel like you're really doing your job. And that, that was when I would advise people who were so hardworking, so committed, and they would say to me, Hey, you know, Daisy, thanks for the advice on how to manage my time and my priorities. But I I just became a dad six months ago. And now I've got to get to daycare pickup every day at 6 PM. And how do I manage my time now? And I didn't have anything for them in terms of how to combine the professionals they wanted to be with the parenting responsibilities they had and the parents that they wanted to be. And you can see where this movie is going. When I became a mom nine years ago myself, this problem came home, literally like came home from the hospital with me. And, and I remember packing my then two month old daughter. By the way, I, I fa- really like, I really like and appreciate that you're brave enough to say when you know you give birth to this beautiful baby that you're bringing home and that you folk you know you articulate it as this problem came home with me oh yeah it's so true also and i just like that you say it that way (laughs) children i mean my children are the light of my life at the same time figuring out how to earn your living and build a career and as my first daughter was born i was facing a big career transition a decision i had to make and so it, it all sort of came crashing down at once. How do I how do I advocate for myself while I'm making this transition? How do I, you know, considering changing jobs? How do I find good care? How do I talk to my boss about the fact that you know I I want a schedule of a certain type? How how do I you know how do I do that all with confidence and with conviction? And nobody around me could really advise me. And I remember literally I bundled my daughter into her stroller and pushed her down to the flagship Barnes and Noble where near where I lived in New York city. And I started looking around for the book, right? There must be something because you can find a cookbook for any cuisine. You can find a travel guidebook for any country and you can plan a safe, happy trip. You can find any kind of career advice. So I figured that if there's 52 million of us in this country, combining career and kids, and that's that's the number, that's how many of us there are, that there must be something that spoke to that intersection, to that niche, and I couldn't find it. Now, very that's a very, very long way of saying many, many years later, it was certainly a progression, but I began really digging in on this problem, and it was informal at first. I started asking people I worked with who seemed kind of with it and together as parents and as professionals, what advice do you have for me? And what do you wish you had known? And what habits and routines and life hacks really work for you? And I began sort of using them for myself. And then I began dispensing them to my own clients. I would sort of distill them, package them, and then use them in coaching sessions. And they worked. So people would come back to me and say, oh, I had that difficult conversation with my boss about flexibility. And it wasn't so awkward after all, or I was able to leave for my kid's school play and I didn't feel apologetic and nobody batted an eye because I had positioned it in a certain way or whatever the issue was. And I kept advising and kept advising. And then I, I just realized I need to do this full time. I can't run this sort of project off the edge of my desk. There's a niche. People need this advice. I needed it and others do. And let me write this book. I'd been writing for many, many years. Let me write this book. Let me let anybody who needs this advice, pull it down off the shelf and say, 
I'm struggling with, you know, sending my child to school for the first time and having that work with my school schedule when I have to show up in person and I can't make the parent teacher conference. Let's figure that out together through the book and then through coaching. And so that's what I do full time now. Was it a scary transition for you to make? Of course. I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a working parent also. So it was scary on a number of different levels. Am I doing the right thing? Am I going to be able to make a you know, viable business out of this? Um, you know, there's always some self-doubt, I think, that every, any entrepreneur has. Am I doing the right thing? Am I forging ahead? But the, the thing that gave me tremendous reassurance was that after every coaching session or after every speech I would give, a seminar session I would run, people would come up afterwards and say, that really worked, or thank you, or I haven't heard that, or I feel positive again, right? I think that's one thing that working parents have not had. We've been trained or kind of trained ourselves in a way to think that working parenthood is something to be endured. Mm -hmm. And just if we work harder, if we sort of toughen up and soldier through, that's the only solution. Nobody has been encouraged to think that, hey, there's a set of tools for this. And also that what you're doing can be a point of pride, right? Working hard and being a great parent individually, those are things that each and every one of us usually take a lot of pride in. And we can also take pride in combining them. And right. so that, that gives me a lot of inspiration just every single day. Yeah. I'm curious, by the way, about your business for a second. Uh, this might be a little bit of a tangent, but are you, is, is your focus on you are the executive coach on this? Do you bring in other, like, are you training people to be parent coaches, you know, work parent coaches? Yeah. So that's the exciting thing. So I do a lot of direct one-to-one -one coaching myself. I also do um, workshops and seminars for mm -hmm. parents. And we have also begun training other, uh, I call them working parent allies. That can be coaches. It can be HR leaders. It can be just peers and mentors, because the exciting thing is in so many organizations right now, that ally group is really coming together. So working parents, um, ERGs, employee resource groups or networks started forming before the pandemic and they've really picked up. They've really escalated now. There's a lot of peer-to-peer -peer and manager to um, you know, team member coaching mm -hmm. that's going on and support that's going on. And so in addition to the book, I've actually just published a coaching toolkit so that managers, HR people, anybody who wants to help another working parent can take some of the tools out of the book and actually use them as the coach themselves. So we've been doing a lot of training and a lot of empowering of that layer of people away from our own services as well. You know, there's something about this pandemic that has created an environment where this is the perfect opening in many ways for people to like appreciate and embrace the idea that they are working parents. And I, I was on the phone with the CEO of a very well-known, super fast growing, you know, tens of billions of dollar valuation company. He's CEO, he started it, you know, kind of a big guy, a billionaire himself. And I'm on the phone with him. And then I hear cry, I hear a scream in the background and he goes, <laughs> hold on. And, and he goes, and then he picks up his his um, son who had just closed his hand in the door and and I'm and I'm watching and we continue the conversation while he's comforting his young son and I can hear the whimpering of the son while he and I are talking and I'm like you know if he weren't working from home and if we weren't you know engaged in this conversation that moment wouldn't have happened and it is such a human integrated moment of of you know being a parent and working at the same time 
And I think, you know, in this age of Zoom and everybody working uh, uh, from home for some period of time, there's been an acceptance of the fact that, oh, you are a human being, you have a life. If you're a parent, you have children, they're probably going to school, you know, in the next door. And that interruptions if for, for that nature seem to be more um, openly accepted in ways that they weren't before. And, and the ultimate impact on our work environments is I think they've become more human. Yeah, so you raise a really great point. So listen, pre-pandemic working parenthood was, it was a challenge, but it was sort of papered over. It was hard to see it, right? Because you showed up at work and to be quote unquote professional, you didn't talk too much about what you had going on at home or the fact that your son closed his hand in the door and you know it was bruised before you came into the office or whatever. And so what the pandemic did was effectively pull back that curtain. And it was literally impossible, not because we were looking into each other's living rooms. It was impossible not to see what was there, right? We, we all had to be a little bit more forthcoming and a little bit more tolerant. And so what had been this sort of silent crisis before, so many pressures in the past 15 or 20 years, really since the advent of the iPhone and sort of the 24-7 always-on work culture that we've had really since sort of, you know, 15 years ago, since, since the iPhone was introduced and even a little bit before that, right. um, since that time, we've, we've all been really grappling with this, but now it's a little bit more out in the open. So I remember when I was taking my book around to different publishers and seeing if I could get a contract to, you know, to write this thing I really wanted to write. And a couple of the publishers I spoke to literally said to me in meetings, yeah, but is working parenthood really a thing? Do people really, you know, do they suffer from this? Is this like, you know, is this kind of, so do people need this? Those were all I mean, must have been very young editors who didn't have children themselves and weren't working at the same time. It was, it was a good demographic range. Let me put it that way. Um, but, but now I think we've all, even if we're not grappling with the problem ourselves, we've seen colleagues who are, or we've seen the headlines. But right. now, now the really important thing is to capture this momentum. So we've had more visibility. We have all been, at least in this pandemic crisis, a bit more tolerant of other people, a little bit more forthcoming. But it's essential that we keep going with that, that we not go back to 2019, that the new normal isn't just a snapback to how we operated before, mm -hmm. that we can use some of the positive momentum into what I call working parenthood 2.0. It's great. It's great. And I think just a healthy acceptance of the fact that we're multifaceted human beings with lives that uh, that in integrate and that, you know, overlap is is itself a gift to like, you know, understand that we can't compartmentalize, you know, parts of ourselves. It's also a risk because we end up working all the time and we work while we're parenting. I've I've experienced that also. Okay, let's let's talk about some some of the challenges of parenting. And I'm going to yeah. take, uh, take some of this time to get some free coaching from you. Please. So I'm, I'm going to share some of the challenges that I face as a working parent, and then let's talk about it and get, and, and, you know, we can talk about the book in, in relation to some of these approaches. Sure. So the first one that comes up for me, that is just an unadulterated evil in our society um, is, is the impact of technology on our kids. And I know with, you know, with, I've got, I've got three kids, 19, uh, basically 16, almost 16 and 14. Uh, the 19 year old is almost always listening to a podcast uh, or walking around looking at something or packing while she's doing something. The, uh, the, the 14 year old it always has her phone and she's texting almost all the time. 
And, and when she's not though, she's using it in an interesting way. She's almost always constantly on FaceTime with good friends of hers. And, you know, like they're reading together and like one kid will be reading and she'll be reading and they'll just periodically talk to each other, but otherwise they'll just be present at least in this pandemic time. And my, my uh, sorry, that's my 16 year old and my 14 year old boy is completely addicted to, you know, Minecraft and being on, he will get on. And if I don't, get, if I don't drag him off, usually in a fight, he will be on technology for eight hours, 10 hours a day. And when I do get him off, he'll be obnoxious. He'll be mean to me. He won't be nice. Like technology has this, you know, Jekyll and Hyde kind of impact on him. And when I completely take the technology away, he becomes nicer. Um, but, you know, after a transition period, but that's unsustainable. Like, so I can't, like, you can't live with it. You can't live without. I'm lost on how to manage technology in my children. Yeah. So, so let's back up here for a second. Cause one of the things I should say when I was, when I was researching the book, I spoke to hundreds of working parents, men, women, different fields, family structures, phases of parenting about what works. And I did really deep dive interviews with them. And so I'm going to, I'm going to sort of frame this and then pose the question to you, because one of the things that I heard as really a red thread through those conversations was the importance of setting your own boundaries right? Each and every one of us is addicted to technology. Your kids are, I am, you are, we all are. So one question back to you is in what ways are you using your technology? Are you constantly or not constantly hooked in? And are you modeling for them how you use your time and set deliberate and distinct, I'm working, I'm available, I'm accessible, I'm on my iPhone, whatever, versus I'm not, I'm off, I'm doing something differentiated and away from a screen. Don't, don't make this about me. You said, you, you said coaching. I want to fix them. The changes within. So so that's, so that's very fair. And uh, I'm not so different than them. I I will, um, I will like take my phone and put it away. And, you know, like at night, I, I built a closet where all of our technology should go. Sometimes my phone's the only one in there. But the truth is, you're right, that the message they get from me is you could always be connected and on your technology. And I will, you know, pick it up and and look, you know, look, you know, if a message comes in or texting or like it's how I communicate. And And the amazing thing is when I... Don't when I'm explicit not doing that. Like because I have an Apple Watch, I know I can be reached. It's a cellular Apple Watch, so I know I could be reached without my phone. So when I go out to dinner, often I will leave my phone, and I I feel like I'm a different person. I right. feel like I'm so much more present. I'm a little more bored, but when I'm bored, then I you know my imagination goes. I'm more interesting to be with. So so you're right. So what you're saying is. I got to I got to work on myself first. I got to create more defined boundaries around my own technology use and then I'll have a foot to stand on to start to manage his a little bit more carefully. I I think what you'll find is that having deliberate distinct boundaries between your own work and non-work time, between work and family, between technologically on and technologically off, like, you know, sort of that's all part of one distinction there, one boundary. But I think you'll find that having those, that setting those and being very intentional will feel incredibly rewarding. It'll be a relief. First, as you say, if you can push it aside, 
you get that time to decompress, to not feel hypervigilant, like you have to be on top of your messages and so forth. But it will also set a really important example for your children that this is a good thing to do, that it can be relaxing, that you can turn off and that there are distinct times. It doesn't have to be eight hours on a Saturday. It might be 25 minutes over family dinner. It can be short when you're going to ask your son to step away from the Minecraft and just engage in a different way. And then he can go back afterwards, right? It doesn't have to be cold turkey, but just having that distinct boundary. And it's going to be useful for you professionally as well, because you'll be more refreshed. It's great. Um, do you find in your research that there's like rules around like, you know, three hours of technology at most for a kid a day? Or is it is it really all over the place? And it's about setting the boundaries of when you're not going to be on it versus you know, like a few times here or things we're going to do that, that prevents, you know, that, that, that obviates the, the technology issue versus, you know, limits on like, okay, I'm going to give you two hours on a Saturday to be on technology. Yeah. So I'm a really big believer in working parents doing what works for the totality of their lives. And particularly throughout this pandemic, all of us have shifted those boundaries. We've needed to, right? We've looked to other supports because some of our regular supports have fallen away. Right. So, you know, an hour limit or, you know, distinct guardrails, I, that's for each and every one of us to decide. What I think is important is to have that be clear for yourself and be clear for the family so that you're not in constant negotiation mode. You're not thinking, well, I'm eating family dinner, but maybe I should just, you know, catch a quick glance at my emails while I'm doing that, because then that that's crazy making. I think what you're saying is you're saying be clear about it and be consistent, meaning not and, every and communicate it. Exactly. That regularity is what's important as opposed to the actual rule. Maybe it's 20 hours for you and zero hours for the next person. Maybe you're a single parent who throughout the pandemic has really needed to use technology to occupy your child's time or as an adjunct to their learning, that's fine. Go with it, lean on it. But right. may maybe you're making different decisions. The point is to be clear and to be deliberate and to say, what are we actually trying to get towards here? Not day in, day out. What are we bitterly arguing about? Can you use the iPad or not? But what is my vision and view of where I want us to be as a family and where right. I want to be professionally? And how does this fit in? Terrific. Terrific. Super helpful. Even though it's about me. Okay, so um, let's- <laughs> it's, all, let's, it's all about you, Peter. It's all about me. Um, so let's talk about eating for a second. Um, yes. uh, and here, here, I'm gonna answer your question before you ask it. I model terrific eating, like fruits and vegetables, and, and, and I'm a super help, healthy eater. And, and two of my kids are there. And one of my kids is, you know, like, I won't say which one, but while he's gaming on Minecraft, He'll be like eating chips. He's like your typical gamer in a sense. I mean, if he could drink beer, he would. But he's like just sitting there and he's, he's you know, on Minecraft and he's snacking and he's eating and, and he's not interested in the food that I mentioned. Now, it is actually beginning to get better. So I, I'm, I think I'm undercutting him a little bit. He actually made a fruit smoothie this morning for breakfast. So, so, so that's great. But any thoughts you have about helping to keep my kids happy and eating healthy, like happy yeah. and healthy? Yeah, I'm just going to pull a side note here to listeners and say, if that's a question that's top of mind for you also, you are not alone. I walk into more coaching sessions and get this question than I do almost any other. Wow. And, and there's a bitter irony here. When you're working so hard to put food on the table, why is it so hard to keep 
healthy, actual food on the physical dining table and actually having your kids eating it, right? It, it's just this fundamental struggle. And it sort of cuts to this emotional thing of how am I nourishing my children? How am I providing for them? So here's what I heard from a lot of parents and a lot of couples, a lot of families who were trying to master this and reported having some good success. That was to have a baseline set of family rules, family eating and kind of health rules mm -hmm. that were non-negotiables, not too many of them, but non-negotiables. That might be something like every night, green vegetable at dinner or, you know, no snacking except you know, these particular things that we keep in the cabinet for you, or you can eat ever, whatever it is you want in the school cafeteria, but you have to tell us what that is. Right. In other words, just have a simple set of directives, not too controlling, but that everybody agrees on. A lot of families actually throw it up in the fridge. They put it up in the, you know, in the dining room someplace. It can also include things like how you interact with other people at the table or that you're not going to have phones at the table. And what that does is give you just some reassurance that, okay, yeah, maybe he is eating chips while he's watching you know, TV or playing Minecraft or whatever. All right, that's not the end of the world because you know that he's getting a good vegetable every day or that fruit smoothie that he made. Huh. And so, so you're, you're just taking yourself out of that day-to-day -day anguish and negotiation. And you're giving yourself also the ability to do a little bit of a preview. One of the other things I heard from parents was, particularly from busy dual career couples, was that it's important to play the week forward meal-wise and food-wise. We're all trained to think about our calendars and when do I have deadlines and when do you, you know, you can do daycare pickup and I'll do daycare pickup. But one thing that we often forget in that, how are we going to manage this week is who's going to get breakfast. And when we're both running late on Tuesday, what's going to be, you know, for dinner so that at 7 PM, we're not both, you know, all or all low blood sugar and staring at each other and pointing fingers. Right. So, so bake that into some of your weekly planning and some of your advanced calendar review. And that's going to go a really long way to just easing the overall operational burden of working parenthood. You know, and by the way, I had a conversation with him uh, maybe a week ago or two weeks ago where it was just a really great and open conversation. And, and he said to me, look, if you just leave me alone, like if you, like I know what good eating is and bad eating. And if you leave me alone, it might take a week or two, but I'll, I bet you that I, that I um, start eating, like that, that I'll eat fruits and vegetables. Like I'll eat well. And I was like, you know, it's, it's like, I'm willing to try that. Like that's a very sophisticated argument, you know, that just, yeah. sort of, and it's very sophisticated of him to say, like, not only will I do it, but give me a couple of weeks, like it, it might take a couple of weeks, but uh, I'll take responsibility for that. And he is a um, sort of oppositional kid a little bit. So like, that was a real moment of wisdom on his part, I thought, where it's like, don't make it an oppositional thing and maybe I'll do it. But I want you to think about the, the people who have worked for you and the coaches that you've had over time. And my bet is that you have coached and counseled a lot of people to not micromanage, right? right. You've said, right. you know, let the person make their own mistakes, empower, delegate, trust, let people run with stuff. That's how you build great teams. It's how you build people's skills and so forth. This is one of the, the kind of the great ways we, when we get to the teenage years, when our kids are older, that we can actually borrow from some of our professional skills and what we know works in a workplace context and bring it home. So right. 
don't treat them like an underperforming employee, right? You're eating chips again, you know, that's right, terrible. Right, right. Instead, just say, great, how, how do you suggest running the next week so that it's healthful? Right. Okay, let me throw out one more challenge uh, uh, to you. And it's actually something that you said that I, I want to be explicit about because I think it's important. And I've seen it play out in the dynamic with, with Eleanor, with my wife, which is you sort of said uh, dual uh, career uh, parents, right? Is that, yeah. is that the term? Yeah, you? yeah, dual career couples, yeah. So like, you know, Eleanor, who like, I, I, I basically bring in the money for our family for the most part. She works also, but now she's left her job but there are still projects and things that she's working on, right? There's still work, you know, she's doing all this, she's doing a tremendous amount of anti-racism work right now. It's not, she's not paid for it, but it's, but she's working. So it's not like a career in the way we think of dual career couple or dual career parents. And, and there's a power imbalance because of who's generating the income. And I think the negotiation becomes very, very tricky because she becomes the psychological parent, she, which she doesn't feel gets as valued as much. And, and I'm busy doing this other stuff. And yet we are co-parents, like we're working together, we're building this family together. And it's, it, it fe I don't know exactly the question I'm asking, except that it feels like a very tricky land, you know, ground for me uh, not to like separate myself up from that work because I've got a really busy schedule and I'm working with, and for her not to take it all on because, you know, she also has work and it's, it's not valued in society the same way that mine is. And it's, you know, contributing some things to our families and not other things. I'm contributing something. I think there's a danger to the dynamic of looking for fairness in this. And that in fact, you know, is is almost all, are almost all couples dual career couples in one form or other and i'm just curious what you're seeing and and thoughts you have about managing that dynamic that could be incredibly collaborative or very difficult yeah or really fraught and and yeah. that comes out when the you know the sink is full of dirty dishes and you're arguing about it or whatever right, right? it can, it right. can come out in um less than fun ways so, so just stepping back here for a second, I mentioned there were 52 million American working parents. The fun fact is half of that group is dual career couples. Another 25% are single parents. So mm -hmm. as, as you think about sort of who's out there and am I in this alone and it feels very isolating, I just want to reassure you that this sort of discussion or, you know, th this thinking is there's millions of other people who are going through very similar you know, situation to what you are, whatever your, you know, whatever your home life setup. Here's what I'm going to recommend. Instead of having a negotiation around, instead of thinking about it as a negotiation, think about it as a conversation. And instead of having it be around who should do this piece of work and I'm earning and you're not and so forth, I want you to ask yourselves a series of questions. And I, I actually have a whole list of these, well, brief, brief list, but important list of these questions in the book which are things like, why, why have we decided to set our family up in this way, right? Mm -hmm. She has decided to focus on volunteer projects and outreach and community work, it sounds like. That's great. But what's the outcome that the two of you are working towards? Five years from now, 10 years from now, where do you want to be together? 
And if your answer is, well, we want to have this level of financial security, or we want to have had one parent who is more or less fully focused on the kids during these important teenage years, or fill in the blank, some other different answer, that's going to allow you to work back much more cleanly and in a more friction-free way mm -hmm. towards what you want to be doing today. So start with that end in mind and work back. And I'm, you know, it, it sounds like you guys have you know, bought into this certain way of, you know, of operating, you're working, she's working in a different way, but instead of managing the day-to-day the -day part of it, think where are we headed? Great, great, great advice. And I also think, you know, it, it, the, the, the beautiful part of it is it requires sort of growth and questioning for both of us. Like, in, you know, like there's certain assumptions that we've made um, and ways we've constructed our life that have been, that we've done de facto, but not necessarily as thoughtfully as either of us would like. And so, you know, it's a matter yeah. of, of looking more holistically at that. Yeah. And then some of the follow-up questions, of course, you know, why are we doing this and where are we headed? But then is this, is this permanent or is this temporary? Right. Right. Because if she is shifting back into a big time, really pressured job six months from now, you guys are going to come to some very different answers than right. Right. This is our, the next decade that we have together. Right. Right. And then and then you can keep unpeeling that onion and say, OK, if we continue the way that we're continuing, what are we going to get towards that we want? Do we risk having regrets? Like if, if you say, well, no, I'm in breadwinner mode. I'm going to be maximizing income right now. Are you going to get someplace five years from now and look back over your shoulder and say, whoa, I, I wish I had made some slightly different choices. Right. So right. by playing with this list of questions, I know this sounds very kind of, you know, Socratic and open-ended, but that's because the answer is, is yours. It's nobody right. else's, right? And only you can, you know, you and Eleanor can have that dialogue. Right. Daisy, that's great. And, it, and, and this conversation reflects one of the things that I liked so much about the book Work Parent is that there's clarity. It's not like there's lots of questions and you have clarity around them, but you're also not giving the answer. There's answers, there's thoughts, there's ways of thinking about this and ways to make the decision, but it's not a one size fits all. It's not like this is what you exactly have to do. And you you mentioned it as like your third baby. And, and it really is because I know you've been working on this for a very long time and it shows it's incredibly comprehensive and and also a, an easy read. And, and it's you know broken out in ways where if I wanna, you know, I'm struggling with something about my four-year-old. There's a place in the book to, to sort of understand and unwrap some of that. So it's been such a pleasure having this conversation with you. Again, the book is Work Parent, The Complete Guide to Succeeding on the Job, Staying True to Yourself, and Raising Happy Kids. Uh, Daisy, thank you for writing this. Thank you for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to hang out with you, Peter. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, 
Check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.